The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. What do Wells Fargo's United Airlines and Toshiba all have in common? They're all suffering from missteps that could have been prevented with a more rigorous corporate culture. That's our topic for discussion on this week's edition of The Views Room, a conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs in finance. I'm your host, Jennifer Saba, and I'm going to be joined today with various Breaking Views columnists and editors, including Richard Beals, Tom Berkeley, and Lauren Silva Laughlin, and of course, Anthony Curry. All right, so first off, let's start with United Airlines. The U.S.-based airline, if anybody has been watching, and I'm sure everyone has over the past couple of days, there has been a viral video going around about a passenger who was dragged off a plane by authorities, a paying passenger, because he didn't give up his seat. So uh, joining us here from Dallas is Breaking Views columnist Lauren Silva Laughlin to discuss you know, how this is a problem for United's overall corporate culture. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. One of the things that that struck me about this is United's response to the video that went viral. It was all over Twitter and all over Facebook. And it was a it was violent. They basically drag this guy off a plane and he comes crawling back and like the authorities come and they're beating him up and it just looks terrible. Everybody on the plane is shocked. And, you know, it took United several days to kind of come out and say what they should have said from the very beginning, which is, you know, I'm sorry. Lauren, what happened and what do you think about this whole thing? The United response, I think, was just sort of adding, you know, flames to the fire. They had three or four attempts at trying to say something. Finally, the last attempt, I think, was, you know, akin to an apology, which people seem to accept. There was several shocking things about what happened. Um, I think we've all been in circumstances where you're offered money to get off of a flight, but I think, you know, only a few people have actually seen someone involuntarily rejected. And in this case, it wasn't even like they weren't allowed to board. This this man actually got on the plane, sat and sat in his seat. So there were several problems along the way. I think the other issue was not necessarily that the flight was overbooked, but that United was trying to get some of its own employees to a destination, to Louisville from Chicago. And so there was outrage about the fact that United not only had some mismanagement, but then favored its own employees over a paying customer. So on several levels, there were some really bad issues with the situation. So going back to the response, I mean, the whole thing when it was unfolding, United seemed to kind of back the employees and and take a very defensive stance that, you know, hey, we asked him to do something that was, you know, within our rights to do. And, you know, this was a, a guy who decided not to heed what we had asked him. Again, which is it's sort of incredible. And it took the chief executive, Oscar Munoz, several days before he came out and said, oh, listen, this was terrible. We shouldn't have contacted the authorities to pull this guy off the plane. Certainly, that was what was so so tone deaf about the whole situation. There seemed to be no sort of distinction between what their legal rights are, which is denying somebody the ability to get in a flight that they paid for, which I think 
you know, in the first step was not totally clear to the average person. And then, you know, obviously there was the sort of violence around how this person was removed from the flight. And United was trying to distance themselves, I think, from the incident and their legal obligation and the actual reality of what happened. And that's not unusual for corporations to do something like that, but the public response is so important. And in this case, because the public response initially for over 24 hours was, you know, callous and place blame elsewhere, I think that's what ended up making the situation so bad. Yeah. And and also this really comes from the top. I mean, it took the chief executive several days to to address this head on in a proper manner, um, which sort of speaks to, you know, and and we should mention that Oscar uh, Munez was very recently given like an award for being like PR, like a, a terrific corporate public relations face. So that that's sort of embarrassing. But it took him a while to, you know, completely address this issue. The other interesting thing is you have customers and everybody hates air travel. You're treated like cattle. Uh, and this incident just really drives that home. But but also what was curious was how investors reacted because also watching the stock of United didn't really do much on the first day. This, you know, the the video came out. I, I guess uh, Sunday, M- Monday. You know, the stock was down just a little bit, and then it just started taking a hit. The longer they kind of dragged this out, and then once he apologized, it kind of went back up a little bit. I mean, what does that say? I mean, a- about shareholders and how. Uh, investors think about situations like this. So what you saw was the bully kind of finally getting its comeuppance, right? So um, this the situation happened. United didn't apologize. People started getting angry. And then there was this pile-on effect. And I think that kind of read through to the stock because initially people thought, eh, you know, we all have bad experiences. This is just one of many. People only fly, you know, choose their flights based on price, and and this isn't going to affect anything. And then once there was this pylon effect, and and it seemed like it would, you know, take a hit to, to United's reputation, then the stock started to fall. What is interesting, and you raise this point about them having good PR, quote unquote, to hear an airline having good PR also sort of sits at odds with how the experiences that we all have in flying. We have such bad customer service experiences that it's shocking to hear that and airlines could possibly be good at communication. Um, ultimately, the dynamic in terms of how it plays into the stock has a lot to do with where the airlines industry is right now in its life cycle. There has been an onset of a lot of ultra low cost carriers in the industry, and they're starting to put some real price pressure on the traditional airlines like United and American. If you look at the way their revenue has gone over the past couple of years, it's been falling, while airlines like Frontier and Spirit have been doing well and chipping away at their market share. So you have a general public that really is only price sensitive, meaning We've all sort of gone away from caring about getting free pretzels and having a please and thank you from the stewardess. We're getting on Expedia, we're booking our ticket, and we're booking it solely based on price. Um, So all of these airlines are trying to find ways to accommodate their business model in that situation. 
So I think that's the first problem. The second problem is there's this new trend to charge for everything. So there's the, the ancillary revenues that these airlines are getting. Yeah, they nickel and dime you. They nickel and dime you, right. Everything. So this is exactly, no, t- completely. So this is part of the frustration, right? You think you're going to pay a really cheap fare. Then you get on the airplane and you're thirsty and hungry um, because, by the way, you can't bring any water through security anyway. And they're charging you for that right to basically hydrate yourself. So you're mad. And the airline don't seem to care because the business model is such that people are ignoring the fact when they're booking their ticket that they're going to have to pay for a million things when they get on the flight. So they're buying the cheapest ticket out there. And then even though we're all angry about it, we're all getting on the flight and paying for all that stuff anyway. And if you look at the fare trends between, you know, 1979 and today, the um, base price versus the all-in price on these fares was essentially exactly the same. And then over the past uh, 10 or so years, this has gradu- this spread has gradually widened, such that now it's around 7% or so. And that's pretty interesting because it suggests that we're all willing to pay low prices and then pay more once we get on the plane. And so long as we're willing to do that, the customer service is going to get worse and worse because they're gonna compete on price alone And then basically, like you say, nickel and dime you once you get onto that flight. Well, I mean, there's another important thing that I think we we should mention is the consolidation of the industry, right? So what's very interesting to me is that, so United and Continental merged. And and Continental used to be one of the basically gold standards of customer service. I mean, they were known for treating their flyers correctly and properly and just the way you would hope to be treated as, as, as a paying customer. So now with all these mergers, these airlines have a lock on certain routes. Oftentimes, there's only one flight or one airline that, if, you know, if you're going from Chicago to Louisville, I, I believe was the, in this case, you probably didn't have a lot of choice. That in some ways allows a United to have this kind of thuggish attitude towards um, towards their customers. And, you know, and that trickles down, too, because you see uh, the chief executive when he first came out, he was sort of defending his employees. And, you know, not that you would want to throw them under the bus by any means, but, you know, a simple, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. I'm sorry. We will look and try and rectify the situation. It just seems like 101 in terms of what you should do and how you should respond. Yes, and you say it well, the thuggish type attitude has a lot to do with the sort of monopoly that some of these airlines have in, in a certain environment. So it's sort of like the bouncer at the only club in town not letting you in. It's kind of like, oh, too bad, you know, you're, you're not good enough for this flight. And that, that seemed like it was the first response. As you say, there's been quite a lot of consolidation in the industry. And, um, and no real, you know, there hasn't been a whole lot of sort of government oversight or stop, stop, stoppage to any of that. And uh, I think that is creating some of the problems for sure. Okay, well, Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you. Let's look at another example. Let's look at Toshiba. We'll bring in our deputy editor, Richard Beals. Thanks for coming on, Richard. Again, uh, you're very welcome. Nice to be here. So, again, just to remind you, we're looking at the issue of culture, and corporate culture, and what role it plays in company foibles. Usually quite a lot, it seems, as we're finding out. In Toshiba's case, uh, uh, here we right. have this company that is, uh, to most people's minds, this, this, this iconic electronics brand, 
and yet it seems to become a maybe coming a cropper because of what a nuclear power plant it bought in the U.S. A right, and ago. it's not it's not that Toshiba you know used to make consumer electronics and decided to build power stations. It's it's all, always done a lot of things. It's a classic sort of Asian conglomerate, and you know not to deal in stereotypes, but you know the stereotypes exist because they have some truth behind them, and the stereotypical old style Japanese conglomerate they did everything as as we put in the piece mm. and make everything except a profit, yes. and. Um, <laughs> This was a little the case with Toshiba, and one of the things that you know the the other thing a lot of Japanese companies has done you know they've got an economy at home where population is not growing, it's not a ton of growth in the Japanese economy. They've looked overseas to grow, mm-hmm. and paid too much for an acquisition. In this case, about a decade ago, Toshiba bought Westinghouse, which is an American maker of things, uh, big big power plants, including nuclear plants. And the problem that's arisen now is some huge cost overruns and delays on projects in the U.S., two big reactor projects in the U.S., which Westinghouse is on the hook for. Right. Toshiba's on the hook for a little bit of it. Westinghouse is in real trouble, and Toshiba's in a So Westinghouse has filed for bankruptcy. Toshiba, and there, there's some shield in so that Toshiba for has Toshiba, backs, but it's backed, still, yes. still backed up. Toshiba has backed up certain things directly. It's on the hook for $7-plus mm. billion dollars of, of losses or, or outlays. Mm. To go back to the cultural question, you know, the, the traditional Japanese conglomerate does everything. The traditional stereotypical Japanese companies is very Japanese, very hierarchical. Not a lot of awkward questions get asked. So this this and, this and is where this it comes in for, for, for Westinghouse then, because yeah. from what you were describing, you've got a company that's trying to deal with a lot of domestic issues in Japan. So population growth, right. lack of earnings growth, um, obviously exceptionally low or negative interest rates for for many uh, years. Yet. Our argument here is that buying Westinghouse and other things that they have gotten into over the years is a very large degree a result of this closed corporate culture, this hierarchical structure where questions aren't asked. Yeah, and I think I think you know you you see uh, you've seen other Japanese companies pay maybe a bit too much for assets overseas, which haven't don't all necessarily go as badly wrong as Westinghouse has right. by any means. And paying a bit too much is not a uniquely Japanese proposition either, but. In this case, you you needed to ask some really tough questions before you bought Westinghouse in terms of due diligence, and that seems like that didn't happen. I mean, they paid some positive, some some amount of positive money for Westinghouse, and it turned out pretty quickly to be worth less than nothing, right. and, and which is a pretty bad start. The other thing that happened, it's become a bit of a saga now at Toshiba. They had an accounting scandal a few years ago. They sort of promised to shake up. But it was really a bit half baked, if we're honest. Right. The you know the the new CEO was still had some history with the company and so on. The board, I mean, again, this is not to say Americans or Europeans are better board members than Japanese, but if you have a global business, it would make sense maybe to have a few non-Japanese people on the board, and that Mm. still isn't the case at Toshiba. So to sort of come in to to follow some of the good Japanese examples, Toshiba really needs to get itself a little more global, a little more sort of up-to-date with modern governance, if you like. Right. And, and now, of course, it finds itself in a situation where, in large part because of this one acquisition, it is now facing, it's said itself this week, we have a, a negative equity on our balance sheet. We may, no, may not be a going concern in the future. We may have to sell assets. Uh, we've had, actually, it looks like we've got not just a bidding war, but possibly even a legal war over, over one of its businesses. Right. With, uh, was it Western Digital claiming that it has uh, first dibs on, on, on one of its chip business? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the, I mean, the, the silver lining of these things is that a couple of other Japanese examples, Hitachi is one where 
a, a crisis did actually force a big rationalization of the businesses right. and a rethink of how they do governance. You know, you might in some of these companies get a, a Western, maybe even an activist investor come in and, and in a hopefully constructive way yeah. and help fix that kind of thing. So Hitachi has streamlined quite a lot. Now here you have a, maybe a forced sale of a big slug of Toshiba's business. Maybe that'll encourage the board, maybe in some newly formulated board to think a bit harder about, okay, what are we actually really good at? Because of course, this is the other problem with a conglomerate is if you buy tons of different stuff and do tons of different stuff, you're not really focusing on what it is that right. you do best. And, and the way to make good money is, is to focus on what you do best. Right. So, so Richard, is, do you think that it's too late, kind of given all these uh, issues and problems for them to uh, turn around? No, all? I don't think it's too late. I mean, uh, we haven't run exactly these numbers, but the sort of valuations being talked about for the chip business, which is a big business, would, you know, as, as long as there's enough cash involved, would be plenty to turn turn this around in terms of making... You mean selling, selling the chip so, business? Yeah, selling the chip bus <coughs> business could could bring in enough that, you know, more than enough to cover what they owe to, on, on potentially owe right. on Westinghouse. And then it'd be a question of trying to basically fix the balance sheet. And then longer term, fixing up a culture that allows them to develop or restructure the company in a way that allows it to be a proper going concern for quite some time. Yeah, exactly. And again, you know, not to pick on the Japanese, you had, you've had conglomerates in Europe, you know, General Electric in the US was a pretty sprawling conglomerate yeah. at one stage. We have in, several <laughs> other examples that we're going to go right. through too <laughs> in the US. But, but you know, it, it's, it is, I think it is genuinely the case that at certain parts of the market cycle or market development you can you can do that sometimes the just being a big corporation can be the advantage you need the increasing that isn't the case you have to focus on what you do best and certainly right. you've seen GE do that you've seen Philips do that in Europe you've seen a few of the Japanese companies do that and some of them haven't yet and you might say the same about some of the Koreans too right, right Richard thanks very much for coming on you're very welcome Let's move from a sprawling company, Toshiba, to one that is very focused on what it thinks it does best, and that's Wells Fargo, which has been in the news yet again this week over its fake account scandal. And we're joined by Associate Editor Tom Berkeley, who's been looking at this. Tom, welcome to the show again. Hi. So uh, we just had uh, Richard on talking about Toshiba and how it's so sprawling that the board and executives couldn't keep a handle on uh, what it was doing. In, in Wells Fargo's case, we've got this report out this week from the board that really does dig into some of the cultural issues at Wells Fargo. It seems to result in Carrie Tolstead, who was running the retail bank that, that pushed through these two million or more fake accounts, really was not questioned properly by the successive chief executives, it seems, but especially by John Stump, the most recent one who had to step down as a result of this scandal last year. As you read through the report and as you thought about this, what, what elements of culture do you think did play a role in Wells Fargo getting so blindsided by what should have been an obvious mistake in its, basically, its core business? Well, it's pretty striking. I mean, this is a retail bank, so they're focusing on selling mortgages, uh, personal loans, all the right, you know, retail banking, not big Wall Street stuff. And they believe in efficiency, they believe in national sp scope, and they also believe in cross-selling. That was kind of a mantra. Mm -hmm. uh, and they also had another actual mantra they adopted from their old Norwest days, which was run it like you own it. So that means business heads like Carrie Tolstadt running the, uh, the the retail bank had tremendous autonomy mm. to run the business the way she saw. And there was this sort of feedback loop between 
a CEO who sets ambitious targets and, you know, we want to cross-sell, cross-sell, um, a division head who's determined to meet that, but by, by whatever way possible, in frustrating efforts by the board to look in, into the operations, you know, the report says that the CEO didn't really want to hear bad news, mm. the underlings didn't want to present bad news, and so all around you've got this this culture that's really just meet the numbers however you do it. There were examples in there of people who had branch employees who had their own family members with, you know, more than a dozen accounts. Mm. And you had one of the earliest, you know, but this dates back to almost back to the crisis or so we thought, but the uh, earliest example they cite was of a, a mis-selling scandal in, um, in Colorado that dates back to 2002. So this isn't exactly new stuff. I mean, you're right. This, this, this really digs down right into what the corporate culture of this firm is, which was cross-selling. You're right. Norwest back in the 90s, was, which is the bank that bought Wells Fargo to create the current Wells Fargo, really was pushing this. It was one of the few firms that did it. Everyone in the rest of the country who was a banker looked at Wells Fargo and thought, that's who we want to be. Yeah. And here we are, we find one of, the, one of the, the main things they were doing, it seems, certainly over the past few years, was cooking the books. And it wasn't as even if they were d- d- getting a great deal of money out of it. I, mean, I think the restitution to customers was, what, no more than $5 million, according to last year's uh, settlement with regulators. So well, there, were red, there were red flags of plenty. You know, yeah. they, had, they talk about the number of accounts that are actually funded. You know, I mean, you got to put a few bucks in to actually open an account. Mm. But the number of accounts that actually went beyond that de minimis deposit, uh, it fell from, uh, it's typically in the 90s. I mean, people open accounts to use them. Yeah. And in some cases, they were down in the 70%, which seems to suggest that there's something funny going on yeah, there. Absolutely. And yet no one no one wanted and, to really dig into it. And banks and, and banks hate the idea of having uh, accounts doing nothing because it earns them no money. Exactly. I mean, this is the sort of thing that you'd think they'd be monitoring more. So uh, here's one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, Tom. So the board decided to claw back $75 million from Kerry Tolstead and ex-CEO John Stump. And has, has there been any movement or talk about going even further than that and, and possibly like looking at some of these board directors because their their seats are could be in danger right because there's been a, a well there, there's a movement among shareholders to unseat uh, many members of the board uh, ISS the big proxy advisory group has recommended no votes on 12 of the 15 including the chairman uh, Sanger uh, he's been on the board for I think I think since 2003 and a lot of these members I mean some of them go back to the 90s um, and certainly all of the heads of the uh, the audit and the risk committees are are suggested that they get dumped but the only people they ISS wants to keep on are Tim Sloan the new CEO and uh, two board members who were appointed within the past I think 18 months and and do they just recommend not I mean they a no vote for uh, for the rest of the directors or are they also saying hey the company should go after possibly their compensation too because that hasn't been that hasn't been raised um you know it's not it's not as if director compensation is a great deal for uh, right. you know, especially for independence although of course uh, um the report was done by direct or on behalf of directors so it's not that surprising it didn't particularly sting board members uh, no that, that that that's correct but I have to say that the information in the report, although they did talk about Kerry Tolstat, you know, frustrating their efforts to get more information, the, a lot of the bits of the scandal were known to the board in 2014. Mm. And considering how important this has been to their reputation, you know, and then the, the scale of it and the, the length of it, you know, you come away reading the report saying, 
they weren't really probing very hard. You could yeah. have asked a few more probing questions if you really thought you wanted to get to the bottom of something. Exactly. I mean, the, the, I think the, the first public uh, notice I'd seen of this was, was of course, the series of reports in the, uh, in the LA Times back in 2013, 2012 possibly even. And that's that really did get the, get the ball rolling, I think, among board directors to try and get some information. But yeah, I give them credit. They've gone back in this in this report, and they've gone back to 2002 at least. They've been quite thorough, it seems to me, in in looking at some of the minutiae at the uh, at the Carrie Tolstead and below level. Um, oh, definitely. It's, it's it's not a whitewash, and the fact that they put out a report that doesn't exactly cast the board in any great light mm. uh, is is to their credit. And certainly, there's more than justification for the additional clawbacks they got from uh, Stumpf and uh, Tolstad. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it does remind me also a, a bit the way that, that, that Stumpf and Tolstead had their relationship reminds me somewhat of Jamie Dimon and the London Whale incident where uh, his head of, what did they call it at the time, the head of, not the Treasury, but the, the head of uh, the division that, that got in trouble uh, with the, the Chief billion. Investment Officer. Chief I thought it was another, yeah. Some, yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ina Drew, who ran that, she was one of the few people left in her position for a very long time. You know, he, he's very well known for shaking up the... the um, uh, executive members a lot of course and moving them from division to division she stayed where she was he didn't question her much he gave her a lot of credit i remember at a, an investor day just before the scandal broke he deferred to her on a couple of things uh, at investor day it seems like stump had a similar attitude towards tolstead which does imply that there is a, a cultural issue or maybe beyond a cultural issue of how does the chief executive know whether or not to trust and how to probe deeper into what his or her executives are doing below her, below them um that's definitely the case. But, you know, in this case, you had a chief executive who both believed in um, very deorganized autonomous units and cross-sell and, you know, until the money comes home. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can understand why it might be hard for him to change. And it's true, the company has taken a number of steps. So they split the roles of chairman and chief executive. So you don't have, yeah. have an all-powerful guy like Stumpf dictating what the board sees. Um, and they have, um, you know, they've you know, eliminated some of the, the sales practice that, so they no longer have sales targets as part of compensation for the people in the retail branch, in the retail bank. So they, they've taken a number of steps, but, you know, you read at this port and you really do come away with thinking that the board itself is, could use a little freshening up. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me that the board is just as big of a culprit here as the executives even if they did commission the report. So it would be interesting to see if shareholders are going to take ISS recommendation and keep them in their seats. Well, mark that in your calendar, April 25th, I believe. So uh, we'll, see, meeting. we'll see what the results are. All right, Tom, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my co-host, Anthony Curry, Richard Beals, Tom Berkeley, and Lauren Silva Laughlin. Thanks to our producers, Bethel Hopday and Andrew D'Antonio. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. Do please share your opinions about our show. Tune in next week for another episode of the Views Room. Thanks for joining us.